This week we present for your edification and entertainment an interview with Joe Yusinski, who recently referred to me as the number one social epistemologist working on conspiracy theory. Theory. Yes. As such, there is a certain amount of backslapping in what you're about to hear, but it's also an informative look at conspiracy theory and conspiracy theories. Now, even I... We talk about our new books, QAnon, whether or not conspiracy theories are on the wane or the rise, and much, much more. So sit back and relax, unless you're driving or using heavy machinery whilst listening to this podcast, and enjoy two conspiracy theory theorists shoot the breeze. Anything to add, Josh? Well, no. On with the show. Dick. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Oh, it just says you're recording. Yep, and it says here, avoid legal snags by telling people they're being recorded. So, Josh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that we're on a legal footing here, I want to point out everything you're saying now is being recorded and presumably intercepted by the CIA or the FBI or the NSA or MI5 or MI6 or Mossad or the GCSB. You name it, secret intelligence agencies are listening to everything you're about to say. So please be warned. Well, with that big of an audience, why do you have to tell me that you're recording and no one else does? Well, I think it's probably due to the weird way in which surveillance laws work. So I don't know how the laws in Miami work, but in New Zealand, I can record you without you being aware I'm recording you. So as long as one party knows about the recording, you can record another party entirely. It's got to be in both parties here in Florida. Yeah, because I mean, in some in some parts of the states, it is a one-party system. In some parts of the states, it sounds like we're already morphing straight in, in, into politics. One party, two parties. Who can tell? Democrats, Republicans, are they the same? Are they different? Now, I suppose to people who are actually listening in, I should probably introduce the person I'm talking to here, which is Joe Yusinski of the University of Miami's Political Science Department. Is that the right department to describe yes. me being? Yes. And Joe recently described me as one of the most important social epistemologists working in philosophy on conspiracy theory. I'm going to the one most up important. The most important. You see, one of because this is the whole point. I'm going to one up you by saying you are the most important political scientist working on conspiracy theories. How do you like them apples? Yes, but I didn't want to sound too gushing on the blurb, so I wanted to appear like an even-keeled person on the blurb, so I said you were one of the most important. But really, there's, we've got this kind of aroha here. So it's really, I am the most important, as you've already said in this introduction. Now, Joe and I are both in rather unique positions. We've both got new books out on conspiracy theory, which is all rather exciting. Joe, tell me about your book, Conspiracy Theories, and the people who believe them. So this is what it looks like. Oh, so I, 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 I have it right here. I, I, actually don't, I actually don't have my copy yet, so this is literally the first time I've seen the cover. So uh, how did this book come about? Why was it written? And what does it add to the literature? So um, you'll remember, since you were here, 
Um, about three and a half years ago, I hosted a big conference um, here at University of Miami of all the top conspiracy theory scholars on the planet. And I had, I think, between 40 and 50 scholars come. And there was uh, three days of discussion, some, sometimes fairly intense. And what sprang out of it was uh, sort of an agreement to do this book where we gather um, all the best perspectives and all the best literatures and get it into one place at one time. And it took a few years to do but uh, the book has uh, 31 chapters by 40 authors from, I think, 12 different countries and 15 different disciplines. So it's fairly comprehensive in terms of what it does and who's in it and the different ideas that are there. And um, one thing I say in the preface to the book is um, there's a lot of different perspectives here. So a lot of people think that the scholars who study this topic are all anti-conspiracy theory or pro-establishment, and that's really not the case. Um, amongst this group, there are serious disagreements. Um, some people are, are more pro-conspiracy theory. Some people are very anti-conspiracy theory. Some people are pro-establishment. Others are much more skeptical of the establishment. And... Um, so as as readers peruse through the chapters, they will get um, they won't get right answers, but they'll get a lot of different answers, and that might not sound good, but I think that's the best that science can offer right now. Is that is that as we work towards better answers, um, um, you'll see a lot of different perspectives. And then you have to keep adjudicating, and then maybe a few years we'll do another one of these where we toss out some of the worse answers and just focus on some of the better ones. Um, but for now, I think it's it's sort of the best authors I could gather and the best ideas that we could get. I have to say, you're sounding a lot like a philosopher there, because one of the things we'd say in most introductory philosophy classes is philosophy is not about, well, philosophy ideally is about finding the right answer. But the history of philosophy is discovering there are a whole lot of bad questions. And thus you get answers to them. And you go, oh, actually, that really wasn't the right way to go about this. So we're going to throw that out and start again. And it sounds like conspiracy theories and the people who believe it is kind of a cacophony of voices, which allows people to go through and go, oh, those are interesting research results. Now, the question is, what questions should we actually be asking about these things called conspiracy theories? authors to do, and one was to sort of put together very briefly what is the body of knowledge in their particular area, and then secondly, to sort of spring from that with sort of the new cutting-edge ideas that they're most interested in. So, you know, there's a lot of edited volumes out there where you, you, sometimes you'll get a rehash of old stuff, or you'll get some studies that um, maybe don't go together or some studies that are, you know, not necessarily, you know, you know, could be published in a journal but might not get accepted ever. Um, but here, the authors were incredibly generous with me, and they gave me some some very good material to work with. So I'm I'm incredibly grateful to all of them. You, of course, are one of them, and. Um, I actually, and this will be interesting to readers, the first paper you gave me I actually thought was too good, and I said you have to publish in a journal. <laughs> um, so the second one you gave me I thought was much more appropriate. 
Um, so I do hope you publish that other chapter in a in a in a journal article. So yes, that 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 paper has been rejected by one journal, but I'm doing a light rewrite and I'm going to re resubmit it. The issue is I've got about five different papers I'm doing light rewrites at the moment, so you keep on having to juggle which one you're going to work on next before sending things out. But I'm sure you have the same experience. Experience where you've got lots of things you are writing upon and sometimes things that might just be the work of an afternoon take three months to do because other things get in the way. You see, people like to think that we just sit down and just write something and then, oh, there it is. It's just, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, just the process of getting through editors and reviewers and gatekeepers is, is uh, um, it takes time and sometimes years just to get a single 10-page paper published. So it's not, you know, it's it's not like publishing something in a newspaper <laughs> where it comes out the next day. No, no, yeah, the process of journal articles can be a long road to publication, as can be the process of getting a book published. And of course, the situations like we have, where we're editing other people's work and trying to put forward a collection, you not only have the process of pitching the book, writing the book, but also corralling the authors to get the book finished. And, and I'm assuming, of course, you had no issues whatsoever getting papers in on time. <laughs> because no, no editor has ever had any issue getting papers in on time. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this because academics have a terrible reputation with this, but for the most part, and that's because there was a a, a three year window between the conference and um, when I had to turn the final manuscript in. So, you know, it was a big enough window that everyone got theirs in on time, and everyone's was you know very responsive um, uh, to my emails over time. So I'm pretty. I don't think that will ever happen again. I think it was a lucky roll of the dice, um, but I think that enough of the authors were excited enough about the project um, that that they wanted to to just get it finished up. So, so I'm happy with that and how it turned out, and um, it's getting play already. So we got written up. Um, albeit by one of the authors on Reason Magazine, Jesse Waters, um, who attended the conference and you met, um, who, who contributed a chapter. Um, he, he's already plugged it, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get some uh, good play here in the States, at least. Um, so um, we'll sell some copy, and they're priced to sell in the U.S. at, at $30. So that's for 500 pages, that's, that's pretty darn good. Yes, actually, I'm, I'm actually really quite impressed by how cheap you've managed to get the book to come out at, because often academic texts are not really priced for the average punter to buy. No, so what I think happened, because my previous book, American Conspiracy Theory, sold really well, and which really well in academic terms is like a thousand copies. Um, so just to put that in perspective... Um, but that's, you know, that's like, let's throw a party <laughs> if you sell a, a thousand copies at the press. Um, so they they had a pretty good idea, given that track record and the fact that this is just such a huge topic right now. They said, you know, this is probably going to sell. So why don't we price it to do so? Because normally a book like this would be, you know, $150 or $200. Um, and they would only release in hardcover. 
because the idea is we're going to sell, you know, 30 copies to libraries. We'll price it at whatever because they'll, you know, X number of libraries will purchase it and that'll be that. And they'll make some amount of money. But here they're expecting, you know, that enough Amazon sales and, and whatnot, you know, they, they put out a Kindle version too for only 20 bucks. So, so they expect to sell some and I think they will. And, and, and I think there's enough interest in the topic. It's important enough. Um, I don't have to tell you this, that um, um, I think there are going to be a lot of faculty and journalists and policymakers who just have enough interest now that's just sort of hitting everyone in the face that uh, uh, this is something you have to pay attention to. It does seem it is the topic of our time, which, of course, is interesting because, of course, you've written a previous book, American Conspiracy Theories, which somewhat suggests that maybe conspiracy theories aren't actually the topic of our time and that maybe they're kind of waning as a phenomena. Well, I would say this, because there's two different things there. There's one, I think they're the topic of our time, and um, I will continue to say that because it pays professional dividends for me. <laughs> but it's not that I think beliefs have gone up. I don't think more people are believing in this than they have previously. And there's no evidence right now that that's the case. I mean, if that if that happens, then then I will you know happily buy into it. But so far, no evidence has been put forward to say more people believe in conspiracy theories today than two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. I have not seen that evidence yet. Um, what I have seen is evidence that our political elites are engaging in this more and our media elites are engaging with conspiracy theories more. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're pushing them more. Some are. Um, but we're in the U.S., at least, we're in this cycle where we have a president who pushes conspiracy theories to keep his coalition together, which is a coalition of conspiracy theorists. Um, so because he's engaging with, with, with this sort of rhetoric, the media now has to cover it. So just to give you one example, I've been running a Google alert on the term conspiracy theory for the past six or seven years. And up until maybe 2015, 2016, I would get maybe five hits a day of news articles and blog posts coming out with the term conspiracy theory in it. Now it's more than 100 a day, consistently. So... Again, that's not a measure of belief. It's just a measure of the media is clearly talking about this. And most of those articles have to do with our political elites are talking about this. So, yes, it does seem, yeah, it seems to be an issue of salience. It's not that there are necessarily more, it's just that we're talking about them more. Yeah, so, and, and it's the same thing in academia, too. I mean, this started some time ago. Um, I mean, there wasn't that much work on conspiracy theories, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. You have Peter Knight um, and a few other people get into it, and then you get the philosophers coming in around 2000. Um, the psychologists get in around 2007, and the political scientists, like, around 2010. Um and now, I mean, there's new studies getting published almost every day from a whole slew of different disciplines. 
So we're academics are doing the same thing, and 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 I think now, like ten years ago, it was sort of a neat topic to get into. Um, but now it's an imperative topic to get into. It's it's responding to current trends. It's responding to current, you know, um, for my discipline, current political problems. So let's roll back. Why did you get interested in conspiracy theories in the first place? So I, as a, a scholar, I didn't um, on my own. Um, as a young person, I was sort of into it because I liked the X-Files on the periphery, but my real introduction to the whole topic was uh, the Oliver Stone JFK movie. Because that, I was like, oh, my God, everyone's in on it. And it sort of made me feel like a brain in a jar. Like there's some secret reality going on that you have to peel back the layers and, you know, everything I see is fake. Um, and... You know, it's funny now, the more that I see that movie, the more baloney it is, because, like, I've probably seen it a, a hundred or two hundred times, because I show it in all my classes, and it's like, it, it's it, it's not consistent with itself. You know, it contradicts itself in so many ways, that, he, and even Stone said, this is, you know, I made up half the stuff. Um, but I was sort of a conspiracy theorist then, and then I got into the topic. It was off the beaten path of political science when I got into it 10 years ago. My co-author, Joe Parent, came to me and said, hey, let's do this thing. And I looked around, and I'm like, there's no data on this. There's no one writing on this in political science. It's sort of off the beaten path. And I was sort of reluctantly got into it. And since I was the data collection guy, I knew most of the burden <laughs> for that would be on me. And it took took years for uh, for you know us to get the data together and get some analyses and and eventually do the book, but um, um, now everyone's getting into it. So, so walk us through the way you actually collected the data about conspiracy theories over the twentieth century. So when we started, what I wanted to do was to have. Um, I was hoping to go to Gallup or, you know, something like that and, and, and be like, oh, you know, you've been taking surveys for years on this. And now I just have to go through and analyze it. And it, as it come, as it turns out, they were not taking surveys on these sort of topics for years. Um, occasionally they would ask about JFK or some other thing, but the questions were not done regularly and they were not done with consistent wording. So there's really no... There was not much there for me to analyze at that point. So I said, you know, the only way to do this is to find some other source. So what I did, I went to the letters of the letters to the editor of the New York Times, and we got thousand letters a year from 1890 to 2010, and I had my assistants read like 120,000 letters, pick out the ones that were discussing a conspiracy theory, any conspiracy theory. And um, we sort of got those together, and then we were looking for patterns over time in that. Now, what was sort of, I would never recommend anyone to do this again, <laughs> because it was just painstaking. And, and I think now with, with, you know, the way that the computational technologies and linguistic stuff, the way it's progressed in the last decade, I think there are other ways to do it now than the manual way that we did it. Um, but what was sort of groundbreaking was that, whereas a survey, you say, well, here's 
conspiracy theory A, B, C, and D that I'm going to ask about. And there's only so many you can ask about because you only have so much money to spend on uh, surveys. And survey time is expensive. But with this, we were able to pick out the big fish and the little fish and all the fish in between. So whereas a lot of what people had studied was just, hey, there's some conspiracy theory that's popular now, like JFK or the birther thing, um, we were able to sort of look at everything. So I think in that way, we didn't have a biased view um, that was just looking at the big ones or the contemporary ones, but but everything, um, or everything that we could find, for that matter. So, um, you know, you would be amazed. Like, there are all sorts of weird things that the New York Times published. Because um, you would think, oh, there's this newspaper that's, you know, very ritzy, and they're not going to publish anything that's, you know, too weird. But they publish weird stuff, so... <laughs> Is there a favorite odd conspiracy? Well, I don't want to say odd. A conspiracy theory historically, which has completely died out, but seemed to be big news back in the day that you picked so, up on. So you would be shocked. So the the median conspiracy theory dies out, right? So whether it was the New York Times or whether it's you know you go onto Twitter at midnight and you'll find a bunch of weird things popping up and they'll be gone tomorrow never to be heard from again. So there's an infinite number of conspiracy theories out there. Um, so, but my personal favorite is uh, that the CIA created lesbianism. Really? And, yeah. And Tell me more. Yeah, so th the idea here was that um, the CIA wanted to stymie the women's movement in the, in the early 70s. So they were creating lesbianisms then sending them in to infiltrate the women's movement, to infiltrate the National Organization of Women, have these, uh, you know, trysts with the leadership, and then blackmail them um, into doing the CIA's bidding and destroying the women's movement. So, you know, it pops up. It's there for a little while, but no one really took this on as a major belief. We don't have, you know half the country believing in this. <laughs> now, now it was there and it's gone. And there were so many of them like that where it was there just for a little while. You know, President Coolidge is doing this. You know, President Roosevelt's doing this. And you, you'll find over time that, you know, every president is accused of doing all sorts of things, you know. So it's not just Trump. <laughs> no, and I mean... We also have the kind of unique situation where we have a current sitting president of the U.S. who's been a conspiracy theorist about a previous sitting president of the U.S. I think that actually, is that new or have there actually been previous presidential candidates who have conspiracy theorized about previous presidents? So I, I don't doubt that there have been mainstream politicians who have dabbled a little bit in conspiracy theory about the other side or about a previous presidency. And if they've done it, they probably did it in a sugar-coated way. I'm sure you go back to like 1800 and they were probably saying terrible things about each other. Um, now, with that said, um, I don't think anyone's, any major party candidate, none of them have done it to the extent that Trump has done it. Now, I get 
a little bit nervous using the word conspiracy theorist because a lot of people take that to mean that he really believes what he says. If you use the term to mean someone who improves upon or spreads these theories, then clearly he does that. You know, he makes them up, he improves upon them somehow, and he shares them with his megaphone. So in that case, he qualifies. Is he sincere in any way? That I don't know. I don't even know if he knows. <laughs> and that's, that's sort of the trouble, because trying to decipher this, to me, as a political scientist, it, it's... To me, it's strategy more than anything else. You know, I think at the beginning, he didn't know what he was doing. He was just throwing whatever at the wall and seeing what would stick. And then after, over time, he saw that the conspiracy theory stuff, particularly about brown people, stuck. And he's just kept on with it. So, because he knows it works, and he knows it motivates that base that really cares about him, right? It doesn't motivate normal Republicans, because normal Republicans are normal. That's the operating word there. People like to, you know, say the entire Republican Party is all conspiracy theorists. No, they're not. And this sounds like a tautology, but half the Republican Party is below average in terms of its conspiracy theorizing, right? Um and they're just establishment people. But you have the conspiracy wing of the Republican Party that just that Trump went after. He cultivated them. He spoke their language. And he motivated them to turn out. And it was these sort of people who would not have been motivated by a Jeb Bush, um, but would be motivated by somebody who said, you know, Mexico's sending rapists and murderers to get you. <laughs> and they came out and, and voted for him. And he got Jeb he pulled along those regular Republicans, because they were going to vote for him anyway. But he was able to motivate just enough of these sort of conspiracy-minded Republicans to, to turn out for him that it made the difference. And they brought him to the prom, and now he's got to keep dancing with them. So that's why you get what you get from him. I mean, this question about sincerity is always a very interesting one when we talk about prominent proponents of conspiracy theories. You're David Icke's, you're Alex Jones, you're Lyndon LaRouche's, and now you're Donald Trump's. Because there is this question, are these people actually being sincere in expressing their beliefs, or are they using these beliefs to curry favor with some kind of audience? So Alex Jones makes most of his money from advertising homeopathic and net and net net naturopathic cures to make sure your male vitality is going to be vigorous like Alex Jones. In your and fight for freedom. Oh yes. And remember, invest in gold, always in gold. Gold stocks all the time. <laughs> and so there is this question here as to whether some people have literally weaponized conspiracy theory here because they know there's a certain section of the population who is going to believe things of this particular kind, and it keeps them in fame and for fortune. And these particular conspiracy theorists may be very different from your average conspiracy theorist who goes, well, you know, I'm a bit suspicious about what the government does, and I know a little bit of political history, so I know these things have happened in the past. So it's plausible to think they might be happening now. So do you, do you have any idea of how we can distinguish between the sincerity of the conspiracy theorist who really does believe what they're 
doing versus the insincere ones who actually might be trying to use those conspiracy theorists for other ends? <laughs> I guess it's if a, I was a conspiracy a theorist, yeah. if I was a conspiracy theorist, my immediate response would be follow the money. <laughs> But I think, so there have been some, some social science studies on this. So Adam Borensky's just published a paper where he says, you know, um, you can trust polls when you ask about these beliefs for the most part, because these people are fairly sincere. They're not signaling, oh, I just don't like Barack Obama, so I was, I'm going to say that he's born in, you know, somewhere else. They really believe it. They're being sincere with their beliefs, right? So... So the people who believe this stuff, and it's tautological, they really believe it. Now, in terms of the elites who do it, there you're in a whole different area, because just like elites who espouse any other belief, right, they'd be like, I'm for policy A because it's the right thing to do, and then the next day their district gets redrawn, you know, to have different people, and they say, well, I'm for policy B, and that's the only policy we could possibly have. It's the right thing to do. So, the, the, I mean, they're always, you know, insincere to a certain extent, and um, you just don't know what they're really being honest about, right? Because once their incentives change, their espoused positions change just as quickly. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how to do that for an Alex Jones or a David Icke. Um, I just, I, I, I wouldn't know how, how to do that. I mean, somebody like David Icke, it could be the case that he has convinced himself. I mean, if I've written 11 800-page books about the lizard people, I might believe it, too. Um, I don't know. So, I mean, that's something, you know, maybe we could put, hook him up to a brain scanner, <laughs> which I'm sure he would love <laughs> and see, but I don't know. One distinction might be the consistency of their views. So... I don't know about you, but I've actually been to two David Icke talks, and both of those talks were eight hours plus in one day. So you start at 10 in the morning, and once you factor in breaks and the like, you finish at eight at night. And what's interesting about David Icke is that he doesn't get on to the alien shape-shifting pan-dimensional reptiles till about hour four or five. He has to gently lead you through his chain of evidence about world history, the commonality of religions, the way that we can alter our perception, technology, and the like. And only once he's gone through this really long process of outlying his fundamental assumptions does he then say, and by the way, this is a mimetic virus made by pan-dimensional be be beings from before time. So there's a kind of, there is an odd consistency here, which means that even if you disagree with Ike, there is there's a sincerity by the way he has to out he doesn't just go Italians. He has to, no, you to understand why I'm making an odd claim, you have to understand the history. Whilst Jones, you might say, doesn't have that kind of consistency to his views, he's more touching hot topics at any particular time. Well, um, let me just push back a little bit on that. So Ike, and I think it was the summer of 2012, where he and David, uh, no, David Ike and Alex Jones got together um, outside the Bilderberg conference, wherever it was that year. And um, 
they got up and they gave a speech together and they teamed up for a little while. But Ike used it as a as a way to to build his sort of, I guess, podcast network. Um, but he raised a bunch of money on Twitter that summer, really sparked from that event. But he didn't get up and say, well, you know, this all goes back to the lizard people. Instead, he said, it's the, it's the political parties, it's the big banks, it's the, it's the uh, governments. So to me, that came off as a little bit strategic because he was naming things that everyone can hate, right? So if you want to raise money from a lot of conspiracy theorists, you name the things that are really nondescript that everyone can dislike, right? Political parties. Everyone hates the political parties, Right? They like their own, but they hate them all in general, right? Um, everyone likes their bank, but hates banks. Everyone hates governments, but they like their own, right? So by saying it's the governments, it's the big banks, it's the corporations, it's the parties, by being that general, he's able to pull in this big audience and say, yeah, I'll fork over a couple bucks. And I think he raised a million pounds. It's some, some obscene amount of money he raised to fund this thing that he was doing, but it was, he left the lizard people behind. So I don't, I don't know if it's sincere for him to say, I'm going to sort of put the lizard people over here and talk about the other stuff, or if it's strategic that he goes sort of more mainstream when he wants the money and reverts back to the more core audience with these sort of more fringy ideas when, when he's got to keep them buying the tickets. And that's that's a, that's a very nice point because the other side to this, of course, is David Icke does change his story ever so slightly when he goes from country to country. David Icke's popularity in Canada is mostly around crystal healing. So there's a lot more discussion of the resonance of crystals when he gives a talk in Canada as opposed to when he gives a talk in Auckland in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which got about 800 people in attendance, which is a pretty impressive crowd. How, uh, how, how much a ticket did you pay to see him? The first time I actually bought a ticket, and that cost about 150 NZ, so about 75 US at the time. The second time, and this is a really amusing story, the second time I got an email from their press person saying, would I be willing to promote David Icke's talk on my blog? And I was going, I don't think you've read my blog, because the last <laughs> time he was here, I wrote 5,000 words on what's wrong with David Icke's thesis. But I went, okay, uh, I'll write back and say, yes, I'm willing to, I'm willing to actually put an, a, a brief ad on the blog of the upcoming talk if I can organize a Skype interview with David. And so Josh and I did a Skype interview with David Icke. Wow. What's interesting about David Icke, I think Josh and I asked a total of five questions, totaling probably two minutes in time, and the interview goes on for an hour because when David starts talking, he doesn't stop. He talks in 20-minute bursts. Wow. But and and so I got it, and I also got a free ticket to that 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 one. So I didn't pay anything whatsoever to attend the second time, and all based upon I think someone just went conspiracy theories New Ze New Zealand. My name came up prominently, and they did no further research. So let me ask you: at the end of the show, did you get up on stage and dance away the conspiracy? 
No. Uh, so both times I've been to a David Icke talk, I have suffered some kind of bodily harm. The first time I sprained my foot on the route to see David Icke and spent the entire eight hours trying to maneuver my leg in cramped conditions so I didn't die of pain. Uh. The second time, which was actually about two weeks before I was due to go to Romania for the first time, I started to get the most dreadful head cold of all time. And the event stadium that David was presenting in was this, basically this giant tin shed, which was incredibly cold. And so I spent the entire second half of the, of the talk shivering, feeling I was going to die at a moment's time. And I had a friend with me, and my friend Isaac went, don't worry, if I think you're about to collapse and die, I'll drag you up on stage so you can die at David Icke's feet, and then I'll tell people that's the way they wanted to die the entire time. <laughs> so well, they could have healed, yeah. healed you with crystals. It's true, actually. I should have asked, David, David, throw, throw me some quartz. It'll be great. <laughs> now, of course, we... When we had our con conference in Miami, I was quite impressed by, well, impressed, also disappointed, by the lack of conspiracy theorists not protesting our little conspiracy to talk about conspiracy theories. Was there any kind of concern about that setting up the conference? Yes. Yeah, so I sort of kept it under wraps. Um, so I wound up getting a few requests from non-academics to attend. And I was like, no, and because uh, I wanted to keep it an academic conference for people who are like going to publish peer-reviewed scholarship on it. And because sometimes when you get you know non non academics in there, you wind up with questions or protests or, or whatever. So that's fine, but just not for for that. Um, Lee Basham, who's a, a mutual acquaintance of both of ours. Um, he wanted. He he thought it would be a good idea if I invited a 9/11 truther. He had a particular one in mind um, that he wanted me to have come and give a lunchtime talk. And I guess this person's thesis was that the the planes were holograms and didn't exist. And I said no. <laughs> I said that just wouldn't be appropriate for this particular thing. Um, but I, I I sort of kept it. I kept it to myself and then let it come out after the fact. And then I got a lot of, oh, my God, how come you didn't tell us? And we wanted to protest or this or that. And what were you up to behind closed doors? And, you know, there's, there's nothing you can do about it. Just you put the term out there and people get upset automatically. Um, so it's, it was just better to, 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 to sort of do it that way. Um, but but just judging by the email I get on a normal day, <laughs> it's just it's not something I want to deal with. Yes, I must. But even as someone who is actually quite sympathetic towards conspiracy theorizing, the number of social media contacts or emails I get accusing me of being part of the cover up behind conspiracy theories and trying to quash conspiracy theories everywhere. It's a case of it does seem to be a bit of a red rag. People read the term and just assume automatically you've got a particular epistemic or political position, and often you cannot change minds. And that's 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 the problem is that you know once somebody's there, you know then they're seeing everybody as in on it. So, and and sometimes they're 
the perception they have just isn't that good. So I was on the I was on the the news over here in the U.S. Sunday morning, and it was. This is my quote. I said, imagine the stereotypical conspiracy theorist in your mind. That person is a white male conservative with a ham radio wearing a tinfoil hat in their mother's basement. But that image would be very wrong. And then I go on to explain what my survey data finds. I got a dozen emails that said, how dare you call us this and, you know, you said we only use ham radios. He said we all wear tinfoil hats. We're not bad people. And I said, that's a stereotypical image that's wrong. It's just they they don't hear. They hear what they want to hear. They hear, of, you know, because they feel like they're victims, and, and at least these people anyway, and they, they hear whatever's going to accept, upset them. And they have to, you know, fire off an email to me about how terrible I am. When I said the exact opposite, and I'm in agreement with them. So, and that's what sort of upsets me, but, you know, I deal with that, you know, but over the years I've, I've been named like an enemy of truth by 911.org. Um, I was in a, it was in a QAnon drop a couple months ago. So I had all the Q people after me thinking I was part of a conspiracy to get Q. Um, I had a, I had a Q psychic say I was going to assassinate Q. Um, let's see. <laughs> you, sound, you sound very connected to Q. Who is Q, Joe? Who is I don't, Q? I get asked that a lot, and it's just I have no idea. I have guesses about who it is, and they have they, like there have been some interviews that have been published with people who say that they're Q. Um, but whoever this is, if this person has any moral compass at all, they would stop. I mean, they stopped for three weeks, but then they started dropping again right before the election. I thought after the pipe bomber, they would have been like, okay, maybe we shouldn't keep doing this. And then maybe after the guy at the Hoover Dam that was, you know, going to, you know, wanted to stop traffic and kill people or something, then maybe they would have stopped. But apparently, you know, <laughs> uh, morality is at a, a premium here. <laughs> so I'm assuming you're taking it that the QAnon thing is entirely a hoax, that someone is deliberately planting this information to get a rise out of these particular forums and threads. So, nor so, so there's an interesting thing here. So, if there was a left-right of conspiracy scholars, right, where on the left you have you know the people who are more sympathetic, and on the right you have the people who are like these are all false. Right, um, I would say that I'm somewhere right in the middle, because um, you have other social scientists who, are, who who take conspiracy theory to mean to be synonymous with misinformation, false ideas, whatnot. I don't take that position. And then there are other people, and and so I might say Lee Basham or, or people like this who are much more sympathetic than I am. Um, but I take the position where I say most are probably wrong, but I don't categorize any individual one as right or wrong. I'll say it could be right, could be wrong. Um, I could spend more time talking about that, but I, I, I give them a, a fairly wide berth, and then normatively I say I would not want to live in a world without conspiracy theories. I think they there is a negative side of the ledger, which concerns me, but there's also a positive side of the ledger, too. So I, I I try to stay in the in the middle of that, um, 
So with QAnon, I was like, you know, maybe it is some high-ranking official who's really fighting the deep state and they're, you know, letting people know about the sealed indictments and the child sex ring and all this stuff. It could, you know, better than 0% chance that it could be true. Um, but when one of the Q drops was about me, and it said, I, so what had happened was I, I uh, was running a poll this summer about some, some other topic, and, I, and this Q thing became really big in August. So I said, everyone's writing about this in all the newspapers. How about I poll on it just to see where people are, how many people believe in this? Because right now you have every newspaper saying, it's becoming huge, you know, it's the biggest thing. And I was like, is it really? <laughs> so I polled on it, and it turned out it was neither well-known nor well-liked, right? And just to put that in perspective, I did this poll in Florida. We had almost 2,100 respondents. So it was only slightly better liked than Fidel Castro. And if you know anything about Florida, you know that Castro was not liked. <laughs> so, so that's where it stood. And in terms of people being familiar with it, they were, they were, it was the thing that people were least familiar with out of like 20 things we asked them about. So we published this in the Washington Post, and then the QAnon does a drop the next day saying, look at this poll. It's a fake poll. It's fake news. It's part of a, it's part of a, a coordinated effort by the Washington Post to fake polls and to uh, discredit us. And at that point, I knew, obviously I knew that that was not true. Because I knew that I had commissioned the poll, I had put, a, put this thing in the very last second with no coordination from anyone else. Um, you know, people can believe me or not, <laughs> right? Um, but I know that to be true, right? So when Q is saying this, you know, look at this poll. It's part of a broader plot. I could say, no, that's that's crap. That's just not true. Um, so at that point, I said, this, this just is not true. And this sounds more like the dribblings of some Jerome Corsi type than it sounds like, you know, a real, um, you know, high up in the energy department who has real information and real knowledge. This is just some conspiracy theorist. That's now, it. I would like I would like to point out for Q watchers who are watching this video, there were a number of video dropouts during Joe's Joe's rent there. I'll I'll call it, <laughs> which of course means obviously I've elicited the bit where Joe admits that Q is real and knows who Q is to make it sound <laughs> as if he's completely denying the entire story. So, but that's the thing is that I I I'm gonna preview something else too because there is is a, a big thing coming out in the U.S. with me and a relative of mine in it. And this relative, I'm not going to say who it is now, because um, I, I think I'm sworn to secrecy, at least for the next two weeks. Um, but this relative is a huge Q believer. So there's a podcast of me and my relative sort of talking about this and trying to reason some of this out, um, you know, with me not being a Q believer, and then and then this person being a, a, a you know a Q devotee, um, and I guess the lesson there is that people who disagree about this stuff sort of, you know, how can they come to grips about it? And I guess some of your audience said, well, we'll just turn it off. <laughs> we'll ignore anyone who doesn't believe it too, you know. And but if you do that, 
it's unfortunate because what you wind up doing when you exclude all these voices is you wind up relying more and more and more on less and less and less, right? Um, and I'll credit a mutual friend of ours, Alfred Moore, with that with that line, um, who works on this topic too. But that's that's something I'm concerned about is when you're just listening. I'm only going to get my news from Q. <laughs> I mean, there you're relying a lot on just one source. And to me, I think you have to rely a little on a lot of sources. Yes, I mean, this is my position when it comes to a proper investigation of any particular claim of conspiracy. You want a diversity of voices in your kind of investigative community. You don't want to do your communities only made up of skeptics or only made up of believers in a particular conspiracy theory. You need people from both sides who actually can hash out those issues and go, are you just making an assumption about X or Y, or do you have evidence for that position? And so, yes, diversity is good in these situations. It does make me wonder, have you listened to the podcast, the RFK Tapes? No. Who's, who's so that? It was a, uh, so it's a, it's a Crime Town podcast, but the premise is you have someone who is interested in the assassination of RFK, but by and large believes the official th theory that Sohan Sohan shot him in the back at close range. And Bill Kleiber, one of the bigger names in the Manchurian candidate, Sohan Sohan, was programmed to kill JFK by other sources, and there's a second gun in the room. And they do this podcast together as they kind of dive into each other's theories, trying to find a way to either come to a conclusion or work out why they disagree. And it's actually a really quite interesting podcast because the first episode makes you think that the host, whose name I've completely forgotten, is going to spend the entire time making fun of Bill Kleiber's thesis. And from the second episode on, Onwards, Kleiber is a co-host on the podcast, also presenting his own views. And it's a really nice example of people trying to persuade each other of the merits of their particular view. So I, re I recommend it. It's very good. Well, thank you. I, uh... So let me tell you what interests me and what interests me less is that I'm interested in why people believe these things, and I'm less interested in the specifics of any one theory, right? Like, I enjoy it, and I'll watch the TV shows, and I'll listen to people, and but the, but the thing is, to me, it, it's, it's not about the specifics of the evidence, right? A lot of this has to do with just people, you know, some people are just disposed to buy into it, and you could change the theory around, and they're still going to buy into it. Right. So so to me, I think you'll have a handful of people that be like, well, this evidence sounds right. But you could take two people, give them the exact same evidence and they'll come to very different conclusions about it. And it has to do with that, with what's going on inside them. Right. And not so much with the with the specifics of the evidence. Right. But I, I, I guess one place I've been trying to go in my life is trying to be very consistent with all my beliefs. And it's it's no one will ever truly get there. But I'm trying to do that, and it's just like I, I don't want to say, well, I'm going to have this standard for this particular theory, but some other standard for another one, um, and I'm going to create a different standard for every theory. And to me, I, I just have to—I want to be consistent and say I'm going to have a fairly high evidentiary standard, 
and and that is that I'm not going to evaluate that that evidence myself. I'm going to let the particular experts do that. Um, and if it's the case that we can't trust those experts, then you're going to have to meet a pretty high bar to prove to me why. Um, so that's not to say that the theories are false. It's just to say I'm not going to buy in until someone smarter than me does. See, so it's the old adage, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So it's not provisor, a, yeah. It doesn't even yeah. go that far because, because you, I mean, you could prove to, like, let's say, you know, the government reopened the JFK thing and said, we have new evidence, it calls for a new investigation, and then they said, okay, we've got, you know, new evidence, A, B, C, D, and E, and um, we have these independent bodies who are examining each thing, we have these new tapes or a new confession or something, and I go, okay. And I wouldn't trust it just because the government, I would trust it because you have a new examination by people who are clearly trained to examine that particular evidence. And I would say, okay, if I can trust them and they say this, then, then sure. Fine, right? Um, because I'm not against saying something's a conspiracy, right? I mean, to me, it's it would be just as likely in theory that some lone dude would shoot the president that you would have a group do it. There's no reason to assume one or the other. And I would actually lean toward the group, right, to sort of pull off something like that. But, you know, bring the evidence. You know, you know, prove to the people who 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 can best judge that evidence and then and then I'll buy into it. Which of course sometimes requires very good experts to be able to come in and tell you how to adjudicate the variety of different evidence, but also what actually isn't evidence in that case. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's fine with me. And that's why, that's because I don't want to be like, oh, well, I saw these three anecdotes and that led me to some new conclusion. And it's, I'm not going to put myself in that position. I don't trust myself enough to be able to do it unbiased and then B, do it at all. Because I, like like 9-11, for example, somebody said, I've got these dust particles. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, I cannot judge that. If you, you could talk to me about chemicals all day, I know nothing. I cannot make a judgment on it. And you can tell me whatever you want, but I just don't know anything. And I got to be honest with myself about that, right? So so that's that's sort of where, where I stand, so. I mean, there's a, actually a nice example of this in this podcast. So one of the theories as to why Suhan can't have acted alone is that apparently there are more bullet fragments and bullet holes in the room than the eight shots that Suhan Suhan could have fired. And part of that is based upon they found bullet holes in the doorframe behind RFK. And someone goes back and goes, well, we should actually talk with the criminalist who actually marked those bullet holes on... On, on on the door, and they discovered that it actually wasn't a forensic investigator who marked those holes. It was an ordinary beat cop who circled some holes on a door. But it was taken as gospel from that point onwards, those holes were bullet holes. And so it gets you into this nice thing of, we thought we had expert witness about why. Actually, it turns out that it wasn't an expert making any claim about why, and then suddenly you go, now I really don't know what to believe about this. Were there additional bullets fired? We don't know now. 
Yeah, and you find that a lot, whether it's conspiracy theory or some other thing, where what evidence that you initially think is compelling might not be as compelling, either because it doesn't exist or isn't real or isn't what you thought it was or, or doesn't matter. So, so that's where I just sort of, I don't want to spend my days sort of trying to be a forensic whatever for every piece of evidence that's out there. So, but that's, but again, that's not that's me saying that theory is wrong, right? I'm not saying that. That's different than what I'm saying. What, the, what I'm saying is I'm not going to believe it until, right? And those, are, those might sound similar, but they're very different things is that I'm more than happy for people to go out and investigate and gather evidence. And I think the best, I think conspiracy theorists are really good at writing appeals, right? It doesn't mean that they're right, but it just means they're good at pushing for appeals. Why do we know more about JFK now? Because conspiracy theorists push for the release of more documents. Why do we have 9-11 uh, commission? Because they, the conspiracy theorists push for more information in public hearings. Those are good things. Doesn't mean that conspiracy theorists were necessarily right, but it means that that they were successful at lodging appeals to the point where we had to open things up and allow more information to come out and more sunshine to come in. And, th and those are good things. And that goes back to what you were saying about the positive versus negative side of the ledger, and that on the negative side, we might be concerned about, say, some of the consequences of belief in these theories. And depending on who you read, either they're very drastic and about to bring about the end of civilization, or they're minor things that can be dealt with in a fairly no normal way. But on the positive side, conspiracy theorists ask questions which really are a stop valve on our democracy by going, but what if? Or are you sure this evidence actually reflects this thing than that thing? And that they often put forward reasons to go, we should probably have another look at this just to make sure nothing underhand is going on. Yeah, and that's... So I, I support that. I mean, I guess... It, in some instances, it can go too far, right? So, how many how many nine eleven commissions are we going to have, right? I mean, do we keep pushing for appeals until we get the answer we want? Is the, the answer only... is nine hundred and eleven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, that would be great. <laughs> um, so, at some point, it could sort of, you know, be, you know, sort of not be productive anymore, right? where, you know, we've gotten all the information we're going to get. Is there anything left? Or is there any information at this point that would overturn the mountains that we've already gathered, right? It's sort of like do, when you do a, re, like in Florida where I am, where you're doing recounts all the time. It's like if there's a big enough gap between the votes of each candidate, is it really worth doing the next count if the gap is so wide that it's just, there's no possible way, right? If you've got 20,000 votes separating candidate A and candidate B, I mean, are you going to make that up in some sort of mail ballot that, that we haven't counted yet or, you know, some other glitch or something like that? And the answer is probably not. And, and the more you keep doing it, the less and less you're going to turn up in terms of error. So, um, but with that said, I mean, I occasionally get accused of being a conspiracy theorist myself because I will say... You know, with all uh, all due respect, that um, 
while I don't believe there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, um, I do think that the CIA has acted terribly. Other government agencies have acted horribly for reasons that I don't know why. I can guess, but I don't know why. But the fact that they have held documents back as long as they have is absolutely disgusting and unacceptable. And I know they're listening so they can hear me. <laughs> and um, that's not something we should be we should be putting up with. And to me, that's the real story that I think the conspiracy theorists sort of gloss over. And they say, they focus on the assassination of the president and say the CIA did it. Well, I don't think they're holding back documents because they have a document in the safe that says we did it. And they just don't want to turn that document out. They would not have written it on paper in the first place. And if they did, they would have burned it 50 years ago. I, I think what's the case is they've done a whole lot of other embarrassing things that they don't want to let out, and they don't want sunshine shining in. And that's the problem, right? And and I would feel like conspiracy theorists are being a lot more productive if, if we rose up and focused on that, because that's where I think the real problems are. And indeed, I mean, one of the more plausible 9-11 versions of the inside job hypothesis is that the planes would uh, the planes were well actually the planes were destroyed by flying into the towers but the towers also destroyed by the planes flying in into them is that the real cover-up is that maybe the intelligence agencies in the u.s had enough information to stop the event but kind of downplayed it or ignored it and then after the fact went oh we probably should have done something about that earlier, let's see all those do documents to prevent embarrassment. It could be, right? And and so, so this is sort of Michael Moore's argument a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you know, a lot of people say, oh, they knew in advance. And to me, it depends what you mean by they knew in advance. Like, did they know at 9.30 in the morning on 9-11-2001 they were going to take these planes into that building at that time with that amount of damage? And the answer is... I doubt they knew that because they would have to be psychopathic to allow it to happen, right? So that's a pretty strong claim. Is it the case that they knew that, that these, these groups wanted to kill Americans and were going to try to do it one way or another? Probably. But that's a big difference there, right? Is that it's, it's, it's tough to prevent someone from doing harm if you don't know exactly what they want to do and how and where and in what way. You know, like they, you know, because they try and blame it on on Bush. Like he knew. Well, did Clinton know that they were going to attack the USS Cole? Did Clinton know they were going to go after the World Trade Center in advance the first time back in '93? I mean, and he just allowed it to happen for no reason. Now I don't know. I mean, it just it it, it just winds up sort of becoming a little bit mushy at that point. It's 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 the deep state, Joe. It's always the deep state. You can always get a buy by saying it's the deep state. It's the deep now, state. So what 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 are you working on at the moment? So I'm plugging the book and um, working. I've been gathering a lot of surveys over the last couple of years, largely about Trump beliefs and who's supporting Trump and what are their beliefs. And the flip side of the coin is Sanders and Sanders supporters and their beliefs. Um, and looking at these sort of non-mainstream candidates, um, what the messaging they're using, 
where it ties in with conspiracy theories and what are the beliefs of the people who support those those sort of non-mainstream outsider candidates. And the and can you give us a hint as to what you found, or is that still very so? This is this is going to shock no one. <laughs> I'll only find pretty consistently. I am going to pretend to be shocked as soon as you say it. So hold on. Yep. So what we tend to find is that the Trump supporters are the ones, not Republicans, but Trump supporters specifically, tend to have um, very high conspiracy beliefs. Right. This so is like shock Oh, my God. Yeah. They believe in the most conspiracy theories, and they tend to have the most, the highest levels of underlying conspiracy thinking. So that's who Trump is speaking to, Right. So you have a lot of journalists who try to say, oh, Republicans are all – no, it's not all Republicans. It's, it's this wing that sort of Trump has elevated into the political sphere, and, and they're his core donators. They're his, they're his voters. They're his support base, and that's, that's who he talks to, right? So, so that's sort of the point of, the, of, of what I'm working on now because there's been – in the U.S., a lot of work on who are these Trump voters, right? Like, why did this happen and how? Um, because it was all completely shocking. One, that he got the nomination, and two, that he won. Everyone was just dumbfounded here. And um, so there are debates, you know, was it sexism that drove the vote? his voters? Was it racism, xenophobia, jingoism, all sorts of things? Um, and I'm going to argue, again, shockingly, that it was it was the conspiracy message that really drove it. And it's this thesis, I think, has been ignored in all the other literature, you know. But I think all of Trump's pleas, whether it was having to do with race or or immigration or foreigners, anything like that, it was always couched in conspiracy theory. There was never a sane appeal to, you know. It wasn't just like, oh, there's too many Mexicans, and if we look at the data, it says this and that. It wasn't that. It was Mexico sending, you know, rapists and murderers to get you. <laughs> so it was always this conspiracy narrative that was sort of underlying every plea. So yes, I mean that's a, it's as you say, it's not a particularly shocking re revelation. I suppose the question is. How did America get to this particular point? I mean, is this a natural outcrop of what happened with the Tea Party and its kind of rise to pre prevalence under Obama? Or are they completely separate phenomena we're looking at here? I think it's a little bit separate, but interconnected in the sense that— because when the Tea Party started, it was sort of like— Economic conservatives who were upset at what what Bush had done with the wars, and 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 all the spending and the bailouts and, and and things like that. So so I think there was sort of an economic conservatism um, that 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 was at it initially, and then it sort of just became this hard right anti-establishment thing. That wasn't so much about economic conservatism as it was we hate, you know, Republican elites and we want these outsider candidates. And that's a lot of what they did was to just push outsider candidates. And um, 
so I think, you know, one story you could tell is that you, you wind up in 2010 with these Tea Party candidates coming in and they wind up pushing this sort of anti-establishment message for the last eight, you know, eight years. Or at least up until, you know, 2015 when Trump gets in for five years at that point. So that message is getting out there through very big megaphones. You have members of Congress pushing this sort of viewpoint. And and I think Trump, you know, may have been able to ride the coattails of that. Because the Tea Party itself was really dead after 2010. I mean, it, it really didn't have much of an effect after that point. I mean, very successful, 2010. But after that, it sort of didn't do much. I mean, those candidates were able to stick around for a while. Um, but not, but as a as a vehicle, it didn't do anything after that. So I I think you have these sort of anti-establishment Republicans who are there pushing this message. That message was able to resonate a little bit better um, and motivate some people who might not have been motivated by more mainstream messages. And and that's Trump may have been able to take advantage of it. But there's a, a whole confluence of other factors too. Um, which which I think are also have something to do with it. I mean, you have this identity politics being pushed very strongly by by you know leftist elements, and there's a big backlash to that in the U.S. You know, where you have a lot of people people are polling about politically cor political correctness now, and you find a lot of people don't like it. Right? There's a backlash to it, and I think Trump, in a lot of ways, was able to take advantage of it. So. Now, before we go, do you want to give us a straight-to-camera uh, pitch for people to buy your book? Why should people buy your book, Joe? Hold, hold, hold up the book. So the book is like me, cheap and easy. Um, but on the other hand, if you want to get a lot of different perspectives and um, you enjoy reading and you want a value per page, you're going to get 500 pages, I think, uh, for less than $30. Um, and it's got the, the best scholars working on the topic um, with some the of the newest scholars, ideas. The biggest scholars. The biggest and the best and the brightest um, with some of the best ideas and some, some stuff that really pushes the envelope, too. So um, there's, some, there's actually some really compelling ideas in here. And there's, some, there's two first-person narratives that are actually really compelling, too. So... Sounds very exciting. I'm looking forward to getting my own copy in the post. Apparently, they're sending them by snail mail across the world, and I'm told I might get it by the end, end of next month or maybe by the beginning of next year. Yeah, so it's just hitting the authors in England are just getting it now. So so yours will be like, you, you, you'll get yours in about a year. <laughs> yes. Eventually, it'll do, it'll kind of migrate along the tectonic plates all the way down to the southern <laughs> hemisphere, and then someone will find it in a bottle on a beach. They'll break break it open, and then by word of mouth, it'll finally get to my house. That's how we do things down under. Good for you. So you will have it, and then the audience will have it, or whoever's left listening at this point. <laughs> Well, thank you, Joe. That has been a most informative chat. We shall have to do this again and soon. We will, I'm sure. Thank you.
Well, it wasn't that grand. I mean, no one paid me any attention during the chat, and therefore an hour and ten of my life was wasted listening to Em and Joe. Uh, but, but I, but I have notes. Ah, so many notes. Notes which led to thoughts. Thoughts only our good patrons will hear. So why not pledge a few bucks a month to find out what those thoughts are? Plus, of course, you'll get to hear what we would have discussed in the new segment this week uh, if that interview hadn't gone on for over a fucking hour. Well, well, I'll, I'll be discussing um, how the president of Nigeria denies being a clone. Uh, also, NASA's latest foray into xenobiology and Milo Yiannopoulos being two million US dollars in debt. It's quite the scandal. So, see you over there in the bonus content. Uh, but first, I need to finish kicking the shit out of him. Oh, but before we go, next week is episode 200. Expect the unexpected. Toodles! <laughs> You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. M.R. Extenter, which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. December was a night.